0: As we're continuing through our study in Mark, we are uh, rocking our way along in our new series titled, Leave Your Mark. And just as a a reminder to us, the whole premise of this book is that by the time Mark wrote his gospel down, a lot of the early church fathers and those that had been in contact with Jesus were being taken out. Peter was going to die soon. Paul was going to die soon. And Mark realized that while Paul had already written the majority of his letters, no one had actually taken the time to write down the story of Jesus. And so John Mark sits down with Peter, and Peter tells his account to John Mark, and he puts it into this this book that we have that's known as the the Gospel of Mark. And as we said from the beginning, as we're kind of doing this play on words of, of leave your mark, that it was John Mark's idea, it was John Mark's mission to leave his mark on the world by giving us the story of Jesus. And the way we leave our mark on the world is by living out that story by living like Jesus in the way that we interact with people, the way we treat people, the way we we love people. And of course, last week, last week was a pretty heavy message. You know, and that's the sermon where I told you, I don't want you to be nice people, okay? And if you were not paying attention and that's all you heard, you probably think I'm nuts, okay? But remember, nice Let's things go by. Nice lets things go unchecked. Nice nice doesn't stand up, doesn't speak out against. Nice does not want to get involved, doesn't want to get its hands dirty. We don't want to be nice people. Jesus was not a nice person. Jesus, however, was a good person. And that's what we want to be. We want to be good people. Because good people... Stand up for those who don't have a voice. Good people speak out. Good people step in when they see injustice and prejudice. They do something about it. Jesus was a good person. And if we are going to follow Jesus, then we can't be nice, but we must be good. If we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to leave our mark, leave our mark on the world. Well, today we're talking about labels. Now, I don't listen to a lot of country music. Any country music I do listen to comes from several years ago. And one of my favorite country songs is by a Georgian named Doug Stone, who you're probably familiar with. And that song is called Warning Labels. Anybody know that song? You ought to put warning labels on what? Those sad country songs harmful to your heart when you're left all alone if you're drinking which i don't do but if you're drinking you'll start thinking about a love that went wrong they ought to put warning labels on those sad country songs and then an addendum at the end there's nothing harder on my heart than old haggard and jones they ought to put warning labels on those sad country songs okay so there you go i do know some country music I just have to go back a ways to get it. But that was, you know, that's one of the few country songs that I really, uh, that I really, really like. Uh, And it has this play on on labels. Okay, and we need warning labels, right? I mean, they they caution us against things. You know, you you pick up a jar of, of clear liquid and you don't know if it's not labeled. You don't know if it's water or hydrochloric acid. You know, a warning label is helpful in that situation, is it not? Yeah. So we need need those kind of labels. And some labels are good. Some labels are very helpful, but there are other labels that are not helpful, right? And that's kind of the ones that I want to focus on today. Uh, Have you ever been labeled for anything? You've been labeled by something fairly or unfairly. Raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much all of us in here. Well, I've been labeled several times throughout my career. Okay, and you don't stay in ministry very long without picking up some kind of label. And I, and I, cover, the, I cover the spectrum. Okay, there are those that say I am too liberal. Okay, I've been, con- I've been called liberal for probably for most of my career. Because I'm strong on grace. And I'm soft on sin. You ever heard that one? Okay, and because, you know, I, I believe stuff like we should love all people. Okay, and we should show that to others. Uh, there was this youth uh, youth event that I was supposed to speak at one time in, uh, in North Alabama in a fairly conservative area. And because I'm, I'm controversial, uh, because I talk about grace a lot and I talk about mercy and God's love, that there was... Somebody that actually protested against me being there, okay? Uh, but then I hit the other side of the spectrum too. About 12 years ago, uh, I spoke out against abortion and what my thoughts were, and then all of a sudden I was too conservative. Okay? I shouldn't have those kinds of views, and I needed to be, I needed to be more open minded. And so I've been labeled in both of those ways. One of the most hurtful ones I dealt with came from a coworker at a church a number of years ago who looked me in the eye and said, You are Holy Spiritless. You don't have the Holy Spirit living in your life. And of course, what I wanted to say was, Obviously, obviously I do, because it's the Holy Spirit that is restraining me from knocking your head off. You know, that's what I wanted to say. Okay, but I didn't. The Holy Spirit quelched that one too, okay? But <laughs> labels labels are not fun. You know, some of them, yes, some of them are good, okay? You know, when somebody labels us a, a, a Christian, that's a, a good thing. If somebody is a moral person, an upright person, a good person, you know, those are good labels. But then there are others that are are not but you see the problem with negative labels is that they often come from our actual or perceived faults, weaknesses and failures. You ever notice that? And here's the other thing. They don't give us the full picture of a person's life, you know? You know that person who's made one mistake and then they're known for that mistake the rest of their life? They're kind of labeled as that. And it's it's almost as if people will not forgive them enough, allow enough redemption to let them move forward with their life. It's no fun to be be labeled in in that way. Other times, those labels are, are grounded in no truth at all. But rather, they're formed out of jealousy, spite, hatred, selfishness, and sometimes even innocent misunderstanding. You see, labels, I think they do a few things. Number one is that labels marginalize. Labels marginalize and they allow us to make judgments. Have you noticed that? The second thing they do is they minimalize. They can minimalize the influence of a person or a group. Somebody says something or makes a suggestion, we say, oh, well, you know, that person's crazy. And what does that happen? We kind of marginalize, we minimalize their impact, what they're trying to say or what they're trying to do, an idea they're trying to express. And then finally, labels, they don't tell the whole story. Okay, they don't give you everything about a person. It's just a small snapshot of a person. Okay, uh, somebody gets caught in a lie, and then for the rest of their lives, they can be labeled as what? A, a liar. Okay, well, here's the truth. Uh, let's just do it this way Who's never told a lie in here? Good. That's probably the first time I've had 100% in one of those questions I've asked you. Ever. Let's do it the other way. Who has told a lie in here? If your hand doesn't go up, guess what? There's your first one. (laughs) Gotcha. We all have, but the problem is somebody tells a lie gets caught in a big one, whatever it is, whether it be their marriage or on their job or, you know, they've stolen something, and that gets hung on them, and it's very, very difficult for them to shake that. We all know what it is like to have an unfortunate and an unfair label hung on us. Well, fortunately, we're not the only ones that, that deal with this and have dealt with that. Jesus certainly understands what it's like to be labeled. Isaiah 53.3 says about Jesus that he was despised and rejected by men. That he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we, we didn't value him. Jesus knew intimately what it felt like to be ridiculed and unfairly labeled. And as we get to Mark chapter 3 today, we're going to see this very thing happening. The first phase of Jesus' ministry is getting ready to draw to a close. He has enjoyed tremendous popularity. People have been coming to Him in droves to be healed because they've heard about this 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 nomadic rabbi that lives out in the kind of out of the city, out of Capernaum. Sometimes he's in the wilderness. Sometimes he's in the mountains. And people go to him because he's doing these incredible things, and he's bringing these words that hold a tremendous amount of authority. And these words seem to be from God. They're not like the religious leaders who say something in the name of somebody else, Jesus is speaking in His own authority. And He's touching lives. And He's opening deaf ears. He's giving sight to the blind. And He's touching the lame. And, And He's forgiving sin. And He's healing people in their synagogues on Sabbath, And he doesn't seem to be really concerned about the consequences because Jesus' mission is to bring heaven to earth. To bring the kingdom of God into the brokenness of earth. And along the way, he encounters more and more brokenness. Whether it's brokenness by choices that people have made or whether it's brokenness by things that have been done to them. Jesus is encountering it all, and now He is starting to encounter the opposition. So starting in uh, verse 7, it says that Jesus departed with His disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed Him from Galilee. And a large crowd followed him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything that he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all those who had diseases were pressing in to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Okay, so his popularity has grown to a level that now he has to tell his disciples, look, have a boat ready because they're crushing in around me. Okay, have this boat ready for me. So if I need to get out of here, I can get out of here. But he's healing these droves of people that are coming to them. Now then watch verse 13. Jesus went up the mountain and he summoned those he wanted and they came to him. Now that's interesting that Mark Words it that way Okay, why do you suppose He does? Why do you think it says That Jesus went up on the mountain And he summoned those that He wanted Well keep in mind You've got hundreds And hundreds of people who are coming to Jesus And we've already seen A couple of different incidences Where someone has been healed And Jesus said what? Don't Tell anybody and he told and they told anyway and what was the result more and more people came the reason jesus said don't tell anybody that i've healed you is not you know, this reverse psychology thing that some people have suggested well don't say it and then they go and say it and you get these results it's because jesus didn't primarily want to be known as a miracle worker that was not his main reason For coming to earth to be a a miracle worker. He's coming to usher in the kingdom of God. He's coming to break the reign and the rule and the power of Satan and sin that is plaguing humanity and has plagued humanity for a long, long time. And so he's drawing all of these people, but he's looking around the crowd, and you know how this goes with crowds. Crowds are fickle, right? Crowds, you know, they they, they do some crazy things. And so Jesus is looking around the crowd and he somehow or another, he determines who he wants. He's choosing followers, not fans. Does that make sense? Remember that study we did several years ago, not a fan? Jesus got lots of fans, right? But what he's really looking for are people who are willing to follow him. You know what a fan does? A fan sits and watches. A fan cheers Jesus on. A fan leaves no mark. But a follower, a follower takes to heart the words that Jesus said, like love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor the way you love yourself. A follower takes up his cross or her cross daily and follows after him putting others first so jesus is calling people he's calling his followers because he needs help because he needs others you know jesus he is god and he could have done this all alone but he is empowering other people he is delegating people to go out and to make a difference and so it's then that he calls he calls the 12 he appointed 12 that he also named apostles to be with him to send them out to preach to have authority to drive out demons he appointed the 12 to simon he gave the name peter to james the son of zebedee and to his brother he gave the name boanerges which means means sons of thunder Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so he calls these 12 to them because he knows that this is not his mission alone. And so he calls these guys and he gives them the authority to go and to drive out demons, to go and proclaim the good news to all the people that they come in contact with now then watch verse 20 as jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so much so that they were not even able to eat then verse 21 when his family heard this they set out to restrain him because they said and here's the first label what he's out of his mind your family ever said that about you? Come on now. Amen. Yeah. They know He's Jesus. I mean, they know who He is. They grew up in the house with Him. Okay? To, him, to them, he's, you know, he's their brother. And yet, He's out making all these outrageous claims. And all of these people are coming to Him. And they show up at this house where there's this huge crowd of people and it says that they are there to restrain Him. You know what that means? That means literally to physically take hold of Him. They want to try to control Him. Okay? They want to try to control what He's doing. And perhaps, you know, they're genuinely concerned about Him. Uh, Maybe they're embarrassed by Him. Or maybe they truly believed Truly believed that he was crazy. Then here comes the second label in verse 22. The scribes and the Pharisees, who had come down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. And so there's another label. The, The religious leaders, the people that are supposed to have it all together the ones that have trained for years and years and years and have memorized the Torah and a whole lot of other scripture, the ones who should recognize Jesus above anybody else, they don't recognize Him. As a matter of fact, they say He is possessed. He's demon-possessed. And the things that He's doing, like healing the man, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day that we read last week, or healing the paralyzed man that was lowered down through the roof from from chapter 2, or healing Peter's mother-in-law or all of the other people. Everything that, that, that he is doing, these guys are saying he is using demonic power to accomplish these things. he's using the work of satan to heal these people That he's, he's a charlatan he's a he's a trickster and so they say he is possessed by the devil and so jesus responds with a parable verse 23 says so he summoned them and he spoke to them in parables How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Jesus responds with this this parable. And what he is saying basically is that that since exorcisms bring healing and not harm, Jesus is asking if they really believe that a malignant power would cooperate in widespread deeds of mercy and grant authority to another to decimate its minions. You see, if if their accusation is correct, the demonic empire is either crumbling from an inner conflict of warring factions or Satan is irrationally trying to do himself in you see if Jesus does not work by Satan's power another explanation is at hand that a stronger power is at play that a stronger one has come in and bound the strong man in his pillaging his house. What is happening is not the result of a civil war within Satan's ranks. It's a direct assault on Satan himself. Okay, when Jesus talks about the strong man, he's talking about Satan. Because that's the context. They've brought Satan into play. Okay, and so Jesus is saying that you gotta tie up the strong man. Okay, there's a stronger man that's going to come in. And then take over. Jesus is saying that Satan cannot drive out Satan because you have a house. You have a house that's divided against each other. He said, "How can I possibly be doing these things? How can I be doing the work of Satan and not the work of God? Why are you attributing these things to Satan? It doesn't work that way." He said, "Everything that I'm doing." Everything I'm doing is the work of God. And then he closes it out this way. In verse 29, he says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now then, that's a verse that has tripped up a lot of people over the years. It's caused uh, a lot of heartache for those who have worried that they have done this. And then fear sets in that they can never be forgiven of this sin. But John, John 6, 36 reminds us that Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. When Jesus is talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, He is talking about the person who continues to persist in denying the work and the power of God. Does that make sense? It's the person that looks at God and says, I'm not going to believe that. I don't care what you say. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in these powers. I don't care. I'm not going to buy it. It's all coincidence. Or it just sort of happens. It's the person that refuses to see God's power. The person that refuses to change their position. And so the question is, you know, if if one willingly chooses to reject God, well, what can be done? Forgiveness cannot be had for a sin that is not recognized. Does that make sense? Because they're choosing to hold on to that position. Choosing to continually reject what what Jesus is doing and reject the words of God. Then in verse 31, says, His mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent word and they called him. Now, you know, it's in, you know you're in trouble when mom shows up. All right? His family was there, but now mom is there. A crowd was sitting around and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside looking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, the many who come from unchurched families, they they recognize this and they know this kind of situation intimately. His family shows up, they're trying to take hold of him. They're trying to, to restrain him, trying to get him to maybe stop doing whatever he is doing. His own family doesn't believe in him. You realize that? That's what's going on here. Now, later on, they're going to believe, okay? Later on, one of Jesus' brothers, James, is going to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But for right now, they don't believe who he is. They think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy to make the claims that he is making. And so they show up, hey, Jesus, uh, your, your mom's outside. Your family's here. And I, I don't know, but you know Jesus lived as a human, so I can only imagine the hurt that He felt in that moment. Have you ever felt that? Hurt and wounding from a family member who didn't believe in you? Who didn't support you? They don't believe He is who He says He is. They don't believe that he is who others are claiming he is. And so he looks around in the crowd and he says, here's my mother. Here's here's my brother. Here's my sisters. My family are those who do the will of God. God. You see, in a lot of people, they, they, understand, they understand this kind of pain. As they have experienced ridicule and even being cut off from loved ones for choosing to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10 that he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. That he came to turn family members against one another. Almost in anticipation of this, Jesus redefines what family is. And family is whoever does the will of God. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my mother. It's also a challenge to us about where our true allegiance lies. You see, there are many people that they chose to follow Jesus or were continuing or or trying to decide to follow Jesus only to have a relative, a mother or a father, step in, maybe even a spouse, and say, look, if you choose that way, we're done. You're not my son, you're not my daughter, or I'll leave you. And so they chose not to follow. But then there were others who in that same situation looked around and thought, you know, the most important thing is my walk with God. You see, as Jesus redefines family, He's also redefining our allegiance. He's saying that that, that family, friends, job, career, uh, everything that we have, our country, everything must take a back seat to the will of God. That's what comes. That's what must come first and foremost. And so Jesus redefines the terms of family by broadening the borders of acceptance for those who have been rejected. You see, in this this day and time that that Jesus is, is living in, to be cut off from one's family was a big deal. It was said that if you were cut off from your family, you had lost your life. And of course, many people today feel this. And so, as Jesus looks around and he says, Those that do the will of God, that's my family. He is seeking to include those that have been labeled, that have been ridiculed for their faith, that have been rejected. The gospel of Jesus is for all people. It's not a a specialized club for those who are privileged but it's for all. And each person that does the will of God, that person belongs to the family of God. This is what Jesus came to to usher in, no matter what was at stake. So let's talk about how we leave our mark. The first thing we see that Jesus did is that he left his mark by remaining faithful to his mission in the face of ridicule and persecution. His family does not believe him. His family says he's crazy, yet he doesn't let that deter him. He has the religious leaders who show up and say, he's not just crazy, he's demon-possessed. And the things he's doing, he's doing through the power of Satan and demons. Yet Jesus knows that his mission is much more important than what people think about him. And so he carries on. And he looks around and he says, fine, if my family is going to reject me, I know the religious leaders have, je- have rejected me. You people here who are doing the will of God, you are my family. You know, that's why we refer to church as family. You realize that, right? Okay, because we come from... All kinds of places. We come from all kinds of backgrounds. We got all kinds of, uh, you know, some of us, uh, some of you are very educated. Some of us are not educated at all. But yet we all form this collective together. Okay? We have different beliefs on things. But yet we find community with one another in the common belief that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is Master. That's what Jesus is ushering in. And He left His mark by remaining faithful to His mission in the face of ridicule and persecution. We leave our mark by living out our allegiance to the kingdom of God no matter what. Now, that sounds really easy. But it's not. Okay? It's easy to do it in here. Right? I mean, it's easy to be a church Christian. You know what I'm talking about? It's easy. We all have strong faith in the building. Okay? We, we can be strong together. But when we go outside the walls, that's where it really gets challenging. And so we have to make sure that if we are being followers instead of fans... That our first and foremost allegiance is to God and His will. So, what is my response to ridicule because of my faith? Does it cause us to, to coward? Does it cause us to run? Does it cause us to back away? Or, do we keep in mind the way of Jesus? I think part of cross-bearing is holding up under persecution. Knowing that Jesus endured the same thing. Knowing that Jesus understands suffering and rejection and hatred. And knowing that together... We can endure. So how do you respond. When somebody says something about you. When somebody puts down your faith. Puts down your belief. Puts down your church. Puts down the things that you do for the kingdom. What is your response. The second thing. Is my first and foremost allegiance to Jesus. And the will of God. Or is it to something else. And. A lot of times it's easy to let something else be first, right? Right? We're coming into one of my least favorite times ever as a minister. You know what that time is? Election season. Because election season is one of the ugliest things going right now. You got Christians on both sides of the aisles that say some of the most ugly things. Slinging mud, all kinds of stuff. Come on, people. That's not the kind of mark we need to leave. We have to make sure. Now, I love our nation. Okay? I love our freedom. I love all of that. But I have to make sure that I love God and Jesus and God's mission more than I love anything else. Okay? And sometimes I'm afraid we can get so caught up in nationalism that it overrides our faith and our Christianity. And so I want to encourage all of us in that time, have your beliefs. Believe what you believe. I'm not here to change your belief. I'm not going to preach about your beliefs politically. But be good as you believe them. Does that make sense? Last question. Do I believe, or is my first, uh, first and foremost allegiance to Jesus or the will of God, and the will of God or something else? If not, if it's not to the will of God, then what do I need to do or what do I need to change to allow Jesus to be Lord and Master of my life? There's all kinds of stuff that could be the answer to that. Anything that detracts us from and distracts us from following God's will above anything else. Anything that pulls us off God's will is something that needs to be bumped way down on our priority list. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And what? Everything else will take care of itself. So where is our allegiance? People are going to put all kinds of labels on us. All kinds. Some of them deserved. Okay? I mean, come on. I know some clumsy people. Okay? I know some brilliant people. Okay, But I also know some pretty unfair labels that have been given to people. You have labels that people put on you. I have them. Some of them are right. Some of them are, are, are deserved. But a lot of them are harsh. And they're critical. And they're unfair. And they don't tell the whole story of who you are. Jesus understands what it means to be ridiculed. He was rejected and he was despised by people, yet he remained faithful to his mission. That's how he left his mark. We leave our mark in the midst of being labeled and ridiculed and rejected and all that other stuff. We we leave our mark by aligning ourselves with God and his mission.